This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, it's Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening in today. Today, our friend Steve Moses is going to introduce us to Chuck Haggard. Chuck Haggard is a longtime law enforcement officer, and he's also a self-defense instructor. And he's very well known for instructing people on the use of OC spray, that's pepper spray, both in a law enforcement context and in a civilian defense context. And you've heard us talk on this show a lot about the value of OC spray in your self-defense toolkit. Chuck's going to re-emphasize that. He's also going to talk a lot about how uh, effective pepper spray is as a less lethal use of force and that not all less lethal use of force options are truly non-lethal uh and there may be some rare exceptions in the case of oc spray but chuck calls it a weaponized food condiment which i thought was hilarious uh he also talks a lot about how in encounters that aren't necessarily immediately oh lethal uh that's a unarmed attacker or a perceived unarmed attacker that pepper spray allows you to articulate the level of threat that you thought you faced and uh, how you chose to respond reasonably to that threat without having to escalate immediately to the threat or the use of deadly force that is the use of your firearm there's an interesting conversation about pre-assault cues that are uh, signs that a potential attacker might give that they're a threat. And what's interesting about those is uh, if you see pre-assault cues, it's probably way too early to result to something like your firearm. But the display of pepper spray at that point might show that you're not an easy target. And on the note of the display of pepper spray, it's interesting Chuck talks about how OC spray is largely very sociably or very socially accepted and that you can carry pepper spray in the places where other weapons are strictly forbidden and uh, it wouldn't be considered illegal for you to have pepper spray out while you're traversing, say, a dark and scary parking lot at night. So a lot of good uh, practical self-defense reasons to carry OC spray, uh, a lot of good legal reasons to carry OC spray, uh, and then there's some other considerations. This is going to be part one of our conversation. Uh, next time, we'll bring in another 40 minutes or so of some in-depth look at the tactics of how to use OC spray and the different types of OC spray that are available for you. So uh, thanks for listening. We'll start out with our friend Steve Moses introducing... Chuck Haggard. Chuck Haggard is another another person that I've introduced to you, gentlemen, that I originally met at the uh, Range Master Tactical Conference. Uh, I'm trying to think back when that was, but uh, Chuck is kind of ageless. He's looked about the same all of these years, me not so much. So it might have been 10 years or 15 years, but regardless, I've known him for a long time. And as a matter of fact, not only have I followed him, uh, I've attended uh, 
a number of the uh, excellent blocks of instruction that he's taught at the Tactical Conference. Uh, he was with the Topeka Police Department for over 30 years. Uh, he was active in uh, many areas, including uh, SWAT. I think he was actually a SWAT team uh, squad leader and possibly a team leader. Uh, he has multiple uh, instructor certifications, many that are recognized uh, throughout the nation. Uh, he's also a range master. Uh, advanced or maybe possibly a master firearms instructor by this time, definitely a shotgun instructor because I uh, took that course with him last year. And he's also a member of the Farm Trainers Association. So I'm real glad to introduce him. We've talked about the use of OC uh, multiple times. And uh, when it really comes to someone that knows all the nitty gritty about the details, uh, I defer to very few subject matter experts when it comes to OC and the use in the civilian sector. And for that, I believe that Chuck Haggard is the man. That's a hell of an introduction. Chuck, you had mentioned to me that you also uh, know some jujitsu and some other martial arts. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, I've been dabbling most of, well, yeah, I was going to say most of my adult life, but before that, uh, <clears throat> you know, I've done wrestling, boxing, Muay Thai. Uh, my, I've pretty much been sticking with jiu-jitsu as of late, past few years. That wouldn't uh, happen to be Brazilian jiu-jitsu, would it? It would be. I know Steve's a uh, both a practitioner and student of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Uh, Steve is quite the practitioner. i got a great deal of respect for him and his skill level and his instruction. Uh, he's a good dude. I got to ask you guys because I'm not much of a martial artist. I studied a little kung fu back in the day, but didn't keep up with it. But I find that a lot of uh, folks who are interested in self-defense are drawn to Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Do you find that, Chuck? And, and why do you think that is? Uh, because it works. Uh, if we if we we look at Brazilian jiu-jitsu and you combine that with uh, almost any kind of legitimate striking art, uh, Western boxing, Muay Thai, things like that, um, then what you have is a very well-rounded fighter. That all shook out in the UFC early on when you look at when it was a free-for-all to begin with. They didn't even have weight classes or anything like that. Uh, a lot of the other arts fell by the wayside because they just did not survive pressure testing. The, the nice thing about jiu-jitsu is, is that you can do jiu-jitsu. You can do jiu-jitsu for a lifetime uh, and, and not get busted up. You don't have to deal with the, <laughs> the this is too dangerous to practice uh, in, in the dojo type techniques. Uh, you can pressure test things. Um, figure out what works, figure out what doesn't work, and uh, it's, it, it, it becomes a very long-term learning process for people. Yeah, interesting. And so I, I know you told me that you have developed a course at one point that was titled essentially something uh, like uh, tools to use between <laughs> angry words <laughs> and a firearm, right? Something <laughs> The, the original course uh, that I brought out a, in a non-law enforcement context is uh, as a course at the uh, TACCON uh, at Tom Gibbons, and, and uh, he kind of insisted that I do a class on this because he knew I was doing a lot of teaching in a law enforcement role on this subject. So I worded it something between a harsh word and a gun because it seemed like uh, OC didn't get 
the the viewing or the respect or the attention that I thought it should get in the uh, civilian defensive world. Uh, okay. I find it in, in a most of my experience is the law enforcement context, but I think in the law enforcement context that teaches us some very important lessons uh, that expand out to personal defense type stuff as well. You know, uh, we have a friend, Tatiana Whitlock, that Steve introduced us to. She's a firearms instructor, and she told us one time about this attitude that she'll see sometimes. You know, she saw a T-shirt that said, I'm not a pepper spray, spray kind of girl. And we had recently talked about a case where a, a woman was attacked in a parking garage, and she managed to get her concealed carry weapon out of her purse and get a couple shots off that ended the attack. But she told reporters afterwards that, um, you know, she says some people train in with pepper or some people have pepper spray and some people train in self-defense as if it were an either or scenario. And have you found that in the attitude uh, that you've encountered? Yeah, it's a very that people. I found the less educated people are on a subject, the more dismissive they are of this sort of thing. Uh, you know, I've got experience. My, my introduction to, to OC spray in a law enforcement context started back about 1988. Um, and, you know, the cops, the cop world has much more experience and much longer term experience with it than, than the civilian world does because it was kind of pushed as a less than lethal tool to, uh, you know, just nowadays with the introduction of other things, uh, they're constantly trying to introduce things to law enforcement. Tasers, you know, the last thing I thought I saw was, was a bolo that you, you fire a bolo out of this device at the suspect and it's supposed to wrap their arms and legs up. You know, people are always trying to come up with the next thing for, for LEOs to uh, avoid gunfire. And, of course, a lot of what cops do is less than deadly force scenarios. They, they have to struggle with people. You have to get people into custody. And you're always trying to not hurt people, not hurt, not kill people. Uh, so, anyway, we've got a lot of experience with it. But I, I have seen the T-shirts. Uh, I, I know Tatiana. Uh, I've talked to her at length about this sort of thing. I think it's a ridiculous attitude. Uh, the The expression... If all you have is a hammer, everything you treat everything like a nail comes to mind. Uh, the 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 niche for the tool, the situations that they solve, mm -hmm. uh, it, you know the the level of threat you face where you can use that legally, uh, being able to interdict a situation early with enough force to shortstop it into a non deadly force scenario versus uh, having it degenerate into a shooting, uh, all of those things make uh, OC spray a very, very useful tool for anybody to have. Sure, and one of the things that we've been talking about a lot, Steve, Don, and I on CCB Safe, is what we call the armed defender's dilemma, and that is when an armed defender is uh, basically attacked by a unarmed attacker. And so there's a disparity of force should that defender go directly to the firearm, even if it's just a defensive display in some cases. And uh, like with the title that you gave, you're talking about OC, you're talking about uh, bridging that gap when you're dealing with 
an unarmed defender, another tool that you can use that's less lethal, that provides you more options. Absolutely. Uh, you can also, everything is about reasonable articulation of the facts that, that you found yourself in. And, you know, you're going to be looked at, as, was your use of force reasonable under the circumstances? Uh, basically, you know, the reasonable man rule. Uh, pepper spray is absolutely a less than lethal tool. Uh, there's, there's no known toxicity. Pepper spray doesn't kill people. It's basically a weaponized food condiment. Uh, exposure, <laughs> exposure to cayenne pepper is ubiquitous across the uh, human uh, experience. If you look at uh, Mexican cuisine, uh, Cajun cuisine, Szechuan cuisine, Thai food, there, there's a lot of hot sauce, hot food that's out there that, that people consume. So things like allergic reactions and things like that, it's just an extraordinarily rare thing to have happen. Uh, there, there's no known uh, toxic level of OC spray, um, so you can't, you know, poison people with it accidentally or anything like that. Not overdose uh, on uh, no, pepper. no. Uh, it's been proven safe uh, for. It, it does not increase uh, any issues with asthmatics or people who have other issues. You know, fortunately, typically people who have something like COPD aren't running around out there. You know, mugging people. Uh, they, you know, they've got their no, own. I get it. I get it. And, and I actually have asthma, and some uh, spicy peppers are good for clearing out the the airways. Frankly, it, it, it <laughs> absolutely does. It absolutely yeah. does. You know, you uh, said something there that I, I I really caught my ear, and it, it's it's a tool that helps you articulate the threat that you faced after the fact. And Don West is on the line. He's a criminal defense lawyer, National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe. And Don, one thing that you've talked to me a lot about is that armed defenders, or any defender for that matter, they need to really think about how they're going to explain their self-defense choices and articulate that uh, in the aftermath of a use of force event. Exactly right. And Along the way, the law enforcement responder, ultimately the prosecutor, the judge perhaps, and then the jury will have to decide whether or not there was an actual threat and was the response to that threat reasonable uh, under the totality of the circumstances. Well, if you can't articulate the threat that you faced, it's pretty hard to explain your actions in response. So uh, I really like the idea of being able to be able to articulate in a clear way what you believed you were facing, what level of threat it was, and how you then chose to respond to that threat. And we all know these are dynamic situations, so uh, I hope that Chuck and Steve talk about it in more detail, but what may look like somebody aggressively coming toward you in a parking lot that causes your senses to perk up a little bit isn't a threat, at least not yet, and you have to take some steps to figure out what is going on with this person, why are they coming at you, do they in fact pose a threat, and you begin to anticipate that if this circumstance actually develops into a threat, how are you going to respond? And 
when you do those things in sort of a linear fashion, when there are some intermediate steps between seeing some person coming toward you and pointing your gun at them, then you've got a much better, a much better ability to avoid an arrest uh, and certainly a successful prosecution. Sure, and on, on that point, you know, if you're wrong with a firearm, you've, you've made a life and death circumstance, uh, a life or death decision that carries extraordinary consequences. If you're wrong with pepper spray, uh, light years away is what you've told me before as far as the legal ramifications. Yeah, and we've had other podcasts where we talk about the, the transition from nothing to the display of a firearm and then ultimately to firing the gun. We know without question everywhere in the country that if you fire a gun, you have now used deadly force. If you display a gun in the face of a threat, it's probably not so long as you don't fire it, but a lot of the circumstances surrounding that, how you handle it, the the proportionality of the response to what uh, you believe the threat is, all of that stuff really comes to play dramatically when a firearm is involved. And if there is a way to de-escalate or to defend yourself without resorting to displaying or using the gun, you are in the best possible position, I think, to be able to defend yourself should you wind up being prosecuted for some type of assault crime. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so Chuck, Don's just given us a good legal reason why defenders should consider less lethal options like OC. You explained to me that there's not really a lot of great tools. There's not a large spectrum of tools for less mm -hmm. lethal force out there for defenders to explore. So uh, I'd, I'd like to piggyback what uh, Don just said. Yeah, please do. From, uh, so I've been a cop a long time, taken a lot of reports from people, seen a lot of a lot of different types of incidents, you know, worked self-defense shootings, legit self-defense shootings, uh, cases that, uh, like I recall one time, uh, we, we had a local gentleman that killed a guy in, in a shooting. And it was a self-defense, but it was prosecuted because it was kind of a kind of an imperfect self-defense. And even having Masad Ayub as an expert witness uh, on his behalf wasn't able to save him from a homicide uh, uh, conviction. So as far as the OC spray is concerned, I'll just speak directly to uh, Kansas law because I'm very familiar with it, but sure. most states have something similar. So uh, here, if you, we talked about the consequences of, of what we're doing. Here, if you pull a gun on somebody display the gun, uh, point it at them, whatever the case may be. Uh, if you do that uh, incorrectly and you're found to have committed a criminal act, that's the felony crime of aggravated assault because you put that other person in reasonable fear of death or great bodily harm. Sure. Uh, obviously, if you shoot them, it might be an aggravated battery. You might be prosecuted for an attempted murder or, you know, if they pass away for some sort of manslaughter, second-degree, first-degree murder, whatever the case may be. Yeah, you don't want uh, to hurt. Whereas if you pepper spray somebody, and let's just say you really screwed up and it was the wrong guy, uh, you would be prosecuted for a misdemeanor simple battery because it would be considered the same level of force as, like, you punched him in the nose. 
so the flip side of that is that Don alluded to was the justification for your defense. If you're going to use a gun, what do you have to be able to articulate that you are, and I see people in the, in the gun world use this as though it were some sort of get out of jail magic, you know, incantation. I was in fear for my life. Right, but, right. As if, if it, you just declare it, and and it's true. Oh, it, it's it's oh, okay. We didn't realize that. You can go now. Um, but you have to be in reasonable fear of death or great bodily harm to utilize deadly force to defend yourself or somebody else. And then the courts get to decide. The jury gets to decide if it goes that far. If you are reasonable or not. Right, including so, whatever twelve people they they put on the jury, including the the crazy cat lady and the librarian and the art teacher who may have very different views on guns and self-defense than you do. Oh, uh, exactly. This is Don. I've been watching a live stream of a, uh, a criminal trial off and on for the last several days, and I bet I have heard the word reasonable out of every participant's mouth in this trial more than 200 times, probably 50 times today. That's the... Uh, that's the qualifier on every action that's being evaluated in the course of a self-defense or an excessive use of force case. No, ab absolutely the case. So if we look at what level of justification do you have to have, would you find, Don, would you find it easier to justify, I was in fear he was going to punch me versus I was in reasonable fear of death or great bodily harm? I, I think you might agree that it's easier to justify a reasonable fear that I thought that guy was going to hit me versus I was in reasonable fear of death or great bodily harm, so I had to utilize deadly force in defense. Um, right, you're talking about a guy who has the ability to punch you, but not the clear ability to to kill you dead. He is apparently unarmed in that scenario. Yeah, if, if you have, a, a, let's say, a very common urban, urban scenario that, uh, that turns into a strong-arm robbery, purse snatch, um, that sort of thing is an aggressive panhandler. Uh, the guy's got, got his fist balled up, he's very angry, screaming at you, that sort of thing. Th that's pre-assault cues. That's pre-assault behavior. It's very easy, I believe, in a situation like that to articulate, I was in fear of being physically assaulted as opposed to I was reasonable, reasonably in fear of my life. Uh, it, it's it's a much lower level of, of reasonable articulation in my experience. Yeah, you know, you, you said something there that really caught my attention too. You, you called it like a pre-assault cue. There's pre-assault behavior, and and Steve, you know, you talk a lot about managing contacts when you're out and about and staying alert, and you know, identifying people who may cause a threat. And, you know, I think Chuck's term there, pre-assault behavior, that, that's something that we look for, and, and that's, that's when we start opening the window where we may have to defend ourselves, but we're, we're, not, we're not in immediate fear of imminent death or great bodily harm, but we're concerned with it. And, Steve, do you think people conflate that concern that an assault might happen with an assault is happening? Uh, I believe so. You know, we've talked about uh, before, you know, I feel like I'm just always beating a dead horse when I say before we can take some sort of action uh, in terms of a physical action, 
we need to have a reason to believe that that other person had the ability and the intent and the opportunity to uh, injure us uh, or kill us, commit certain, um, oh, my gosh, what are those called, uh, forcible felonies, and really had no other good options. And if that is in effect and you believe that is about to happen and that person is exhibiting some uh, cues, some physical cues, I'm sure Chuck can elaborate on this even better than I can, that would cause me to believe that that person was uh, contemplating an assault. That is, what was their stance? Was their stance bladed with maybe their power side uh, back? Did they shift their weight? Uh, were they stroking their face, you know, it's kind of a, as a stress reliever? Were they looking at a potential target area? Were they looking around for uh, witnesses and then, uh, or anybody else that might intervene? And then what is going on at that particular uh, time? I mean, is that person, you know, completely across uh, the body of a car? Or are they within, you'll know, say, maybe two arm's lengths where they could actually lunge and get their hands on me? possibly before I could uh, do anything, you know, other that, that, that might save my life or at least save me from a beating. And in that particular instance, I think that something that Chuck is talking about, I think that could be very viable if you're you know, clearly able to articulate that. And it's in a manner that other reasonable person, you know, people would agree. Uh, the problem is, is just because that person made me nervous or looked at me funny, uh, that in of itself, I don't think that warrants a response, and uh, that's um, especially true if you have the ability to go ahead and create distance. So Claude, Claude Warner, likes, the tactical professor, likes to say, paint them orange, right? So what I'm hearing you say, Steve, is just because someone made you nervous doesn't mean you can paint them orange. But, uh, Chuck, what's you see this pre-assault behavior, uh, your concealed carrier, your carrying OC spray, how you mitigating that encounter so you know what when I'm looking for pre-assault cues there's a there's a whole uh, body of those that we've codified in in a group of trainers that I have best named by my friend Craig Douglas is what sure. he turns uh, in in his muck module MUC managing unknown contacts uh, and when you're dealing with people in a street encounter and you don't know what their intentions are, you know, are they good? Are they ill? Uh, you you kind of have to have to negotiate that obstacle, if you will. So things that we look for include grooming cues, target glancing, often picking or plucking padding behavior. They will tell you if they have a weapon on them. Uh, if they are, if they take a fighting stance, if they, if they, make a definitive weight shift into an athletic or fighting stance. That's typically something that happens right before somebody throws a, you know, most people that aren't trained fighters throw like a big John Wayne haymaker at you um, is, is how they throw a punch. And when they do that, they've got to prep their footwork to throw an effective punch. Um, sometimes people will outright tell you if a guy says that he's going to uh, kick your ass, then, you know, the safe thing to do is take his word for it. Uh, but when you've got people yelling at you, they're red-faced, you can see the veins in their neck, uh, things like that, balling up their fists, muscular tension in their body, uh, you know, very angry speech, that sort of thing. All of that goes into painting the picture of, of pre-assault cues. Um, and if you look at, like here in Kansas, an assault 
isn't a physical act, but it's the threat of a battery is what constitutes an assault. Okay. If you, if you put somebody in fear that they're going to be physically assaulted, if they're going to be punched in the face, whatever the case may be, that's an assault. And you can use physical force to defend yourself at that level. Uh, it, I believe it's much easier to articulate that you're facing that level of threat than and and some of these cases that uh, that I looked over in the email things that were imperfect self-defense where people use a gun in self-defense to uh, in in a case where the court or the jury found that no that was not a deadly force scenario but let's you know use the generic term you shot an unarmed guy you weren't really in reasonable fear of death or great bodily harm, so you shouldn't have used a gun in that context. But people use the gun often in those cases because they didn't have any other training or any other options to fall back on. So uh, before we get into that other training and other options, uh, the legal uh, litigation consultant in me wants to take a quick break and say that uh, sometimes someone telling them they're, they're going to kick your ass <laughs> You should believe them. Don will tell us, of course, that that's not enough to use force, but there also has to be clearly uh, the opportunity and the ability to do so combined with a believable intent. Is that right, Don? Well, yeah, that's what Steve was saying a moment ago, having the, uh, the ability to carry out the threats, having the opportunity. Uh, they are within a close enough range that they can actually accomplish that or can accomplish it in short order and that and of course that they actually intend to do it that they're not just trash talking or running their mouth in some way but of course now the fact that they say I'm going to kick your ass and uh, even intend to it uh, intend to do it and can at least get close enough to to hit you does not allow you to explain, as Chuck was talking about, to the police officer or uh, to the jury later, well, I was in fear of great bodily harm or death. I was in fear for my life. So that's when that guy raised his hand and said, I'm going to kick your ass that I shot him between the eyes. You know, we're talking about a non-deadly force threat, mm -hmm. at least at that point. And any response to that threat has to be proportional to the force that's being threatened. So that's sort of the zero to a hundred kind of thing. Now, as Chuck and Steve will certainly help us understand, they're the martial artist guys and they can defend themselves better with their hands than, than you and I can, Sean. I and will vouch for that. The, the people attacking us may very well have those skills too and they are much more capable with their hands uh, as an attacker, then you and I could use ours to defend ourselves. But when you're talking about what appears to be an unarmed attacker, uh, and you're considering whether or not to shoot them, then of course this whole notion of size and capacity and ability and intent and uh, all of that factors in under this huge umbrella of reasonableness but uh, your decision-making has to be based upon your assessment of all of those things that make you believe this person intends to do what they said they're going to do and possibly can, and then whether or not, even if that's true, rises to the level of a deadly force threat that would justify and warrant the actual use of deadly force. 
Uh, a lot of people right. get in trouble because they don't really know for sure what's going to happen and what has happened already may not rise to that level, but they pull the gun anyway. If nothing more happens at that point, they could very well find themselves arrested for aggravated assault or some kind of brandishing or menacing charge, uh, and, and often do. We see those cases, as you guys yeah. well know. One thing that, uh, that, that Chuck mentioned that let me emphasize about a simple assault versus an aggravated assault, uh, the law in Florida is similar in that the assault is the threat the consummation of the assault into the physical contact becomes the battery. But anytime you introduce a firearm into the scenario, you run the risk of the crime that you could be charged with being enhanced from a misdemeanor to a felony, which is bad enough, but many, many firearms charges also carry with it not only the potential punishment of a felony, uh, the stigma of a felony conviction, but many of them have a mandatory minimum prison sentence, which simply means that if you are convicted of that crime, the judge has no choice whatsoever, must in fact impose whatever that minimum prison sentence is, whether they want to or not. So whenever you introduce a firearm into uh, a situation like this, you've really raised the stakes, raised the risk, and I'm, I'm hoping that we're going to be, have a better understanding in the next half hour, 45 minutes of what we can do to avoid that, what in some ways is a true life or death situation. Sure, what, what Chuck had posed for us is the options and training. And, and Chuck, I assume that means that you feel that people can't, <coughs> excuse me, can't just go, buy some pepper spray and assume they know how to use it and, and can deploy it effectively? Well, uh, my, my analogy would be is pistols. Uh, they're very, very simple. You grip them consistently, you line up the sights, and then you press the trigger without disturbing the first two things that you did. Right. That's all there is to it. Uh, and But how easy is that to actually be competent with? Just because and, and competent in a stressful situation. <clears throat> yeah, to, to utilize things effectively, we, we have to know how to best utilize the tool, when to introduce it, best tactics for that. I know a lot of people think, oh, it's pepper spray. You spray it. That's all there is to it. Uh, I, I did a class in, in Ohio. I was hosted by uh, some friends of mine at, at the range in Ohio, and I did a, a, a non-law enforcement instructor school for, for OC spray had a pretty full class and a lot of the people that were in there uh, were already concealed carry instructors or NRA instructors have some sort of instructor background uh, but had it wanted to introduce OC as part of their defensive program that they offer at where they're teaching so a lot of them were really shocked when we got into uh, uh, live person drilling with inert spray, so kind of a, a low-level force-on-force, how easy it was to miss, how easy it was to not get an effective hit with the OC spray uh, when we were doing that drilling. Uh, the, they didn't realize the differences in canister size, types of patterns, uh, formulations, things like that. Uh, it's very easy in uh, the modern market to buy poor quality OC that isn't going, just like you can buy poor quality guns, 
Um, you know, I don't personally want to try and defend my life with a $120 pistol if I can afford to get something better. So, uh, you know, it's easy to buy poor quality spray. So what I do in, in my class is to educate people on their best options and how to use that and how to integrate those tactics into, uh, uh, you know, surviving a street encounter type of, type of event. So can you give us a quick tour uh, with, of what the different types of sprays and patterns there are? To be considered. So, uh, so for some for some misinformation dispelling, uh, OC spray. One thing I hear I see on the internet a lot is uh, OC spray for people, and bear spray are two different things. And the, the active ingredient is uh, exactly the same thing. Uh, the OC ingredient, oleoresin capsicum, or the, the capsaicin content of the spray, is what makes it hot, and that's the effective part of it that that we want to put on the target. Uh, OC is very effective on people. It's very effective on dogs, which is another reason that I carry it. Uh, and it's also in a bear spray context. Uh, it has been proven through studies in Atlanta, in Atlanta and other places to be very effective on bears. So we can utilize that as a tool to avoid firing our, our guns uh, in many scenarios. Uh, one of those being like when I walk my dogs, I have small dogs, and we've all heard stories of Say somebody's loose big dog, you know, uh, a lot of people like to denigrate pit bulls. I actually like the breed, but you see these stories of, say, pit bull attacks somebody's poodle type thing. Um, if I can avoid firing shots in an urban setting and if I can avoid shooting a dog because I'm a dog person and I can avoid all that by use of pepper spray, that, that's another defensive option that avails uh, to us um, that's a pretty good option. So... The, the types of sprays that are commonly in use, you have a cone-shaped mist, uh, or it's kind of a fog type of pattern. You have the larger full-size foggers that unfortunately we've seen a lot of in some of the riot videos over the past year and a half. And you have a streamer, which is a much more concentrated stream, kind of what would, a smaller version of what would you'd see coming out of like a kid's super soaker or a squirt gun. Uh, and uh, then you have different formulations like uh, gels, foams, uh, things like that. So you have to kind of, you know, just with fire, just like with firearms, you have to make an educated choice to. Uh, one of my mentors, Pat Rogers, was famously uh, saying all the time, mission drives the gear train. So we have to know what we want to accomplish to know what gear we need to purchase uh, and then have some training on how to utilize that to best effect. Uh, so, yeah, uh, a lot of misinformation out there, uh, a lot of sources that I see on the internet where I see they, they just, they really get the, they get really get the information on this subject wrong. But what I hear you saying is that there's, there's not necessarily a right or wrong configuration or format to get, but uh, you have to match the, the tool with the, the problem that you're going to face. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Uh, and then, of course, just like with handguns, you know, maybe say you need something for very uh, deep concealment. So uh, you've got a Ruger LCP or you've got a uh, Smith & Wesson J frame. You know, you might have a smaller gun that, that you are giving up, a, that what you know you're giving up some effectiveness to gain concealability and portability. Uh, or you might go to, a, you know, a larger gun, say a Glock or a 1911 or something like that. Well, there's analogies for that in the OC spray world as well. You know, there's the little tiny keychain things that are almost ubiquitous now. 
that you see a lot of in ladies' purses. Sure. Um, and then, you know, progressively larger units all the way up to, like, bear sprays, uh, which are almost the size of a small fire extinguisher. Um, one of the things I do throw out to people is OC is the one thing that I have seen across the board that in our society, even with, you know, people pushing gun control, et cetera, et cetera, uh, pepper spray is very socially accepted. I know, uh, like locally, we have a large, uh, very, very large corporate office. Uh, very, They move a lot of money. And uh, they have a large office staff and they have a lot of ladies working in their offices and they have a no weapons policy. And a lot of those ladies have pepper spray like on their keychain or in their purse. And nobody even considers that a violation of their weapons policy. Uh, it, it is common to see ladies with a, with a pepper spray on their uh, keychain. You, it is the one weapon that you can, let's say you're leaving the office late and you have to walk across a proverbial dark parking lot. You can have your pepper spray in your hand and it's socially acceptable. Nobody really thinks anything of it. Whereas you can't pull your pistol and negotiate that parking lot at low ready. You know, somebody's right. going to call the SWAT team on you. Uh, so the advantage that that gives you in these transitional spaces where these types of assaults or criminal uh, activity occurs is think how much faster you are on the draw when you already have your gun or your hand on the gun. And now, basically, you get to cheat. The pepper spray is already in your hand, so your reaction time to some sort of criminal assault or, you know, threat of criminal assault is extraordinarily fast. Yeah, so that's a great point, Chuck. It's done. I've I've never I've seen a few scenarios where people have totally jumped a gun and used their pepper spray as an offensive weapon, and and weren't justified in that. But yeah, whereas you say that just displaying the firearm could end up becoming felony assault. The display of pepper spray, I've never actually seen anyone get arrested for displaying pepper spray before. No, I haven't either. I've never represented anyone who's been charged with that. I suppose there are circumstances under which it might happen, uh, but I tell you, if I'm going to defend someone who's accused of assault because they displayed a can of pepper spray as opposed to displaying a firearm bring on the first one all right guys that's the podcast for today thanks for listening through to the end next time we're gonna pick up right where we left off which is the strategic display of pepper spray uh, to defend yourself in pre-assault conditions and then uh, we'll roll into the types of pepper spray and the tactics and training required to make good use of it until then thanks for listening be smart stay safe take care